0: this week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: I've been injured. I know what it's like to be in pain. I I know what it is like to have your life completely altered by a physical ailment. And to be able to look my patients in the eyes and and have that empathy, to be able to say, I understand and there's hope. You always want to give a patient hope. You always want them to know that there's a way out, that there can be a better way. And so being able to impart that onto my patients as well on a day-to-day basis, all of a sudden there becomes a buzz about your practice. It becomes a buzz about you as a physician, that there's something different about this guy. He actually cares. And, and while that takes time to build that reputation, once that really clicks, then, then that buzz is out there and, and you can really have a, a joyful and exciting practice to go to every day. Hello everyone
0: and welcome to the Table MSK Podcast your source for all things musculoskeletal. You can find all previous episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during Cine and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See RADPAD.com for more information, and contact info at RADPAD.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable Podcast. Now, back to the show. This is Jacob Fleming as your guest host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our special guest, fellow Dallasites and interventional spine and pain specialist, Dr. John Michaels. Dr. Michaels, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me on today, Jacob.
0: Absolutely. It's our pleasure. And Dr. Michaels, I'm I'm really looking forward to this, been looking forward to this for quite some time now and hearing your perspective, which is unique for many reasons, as a fellowship trained pain specialist with a background in radiology. I know our listeners will be interested to hear about your approach and practice. And I'm sure you get this all the time, but I believe this is the first time Backtable has had the honor of hosting a Super Bowl champion.
1: Yeah, it was an amazing former life that I used to live. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, we just actually had our 25th anniversary reunion of that Super Bowl team this fall. Oh, so wow. I got to go back to Green Bay and get back together with Brett Favre and Andre Risen and and some of those Super Bowl stars. And, and uh, yeah, it was an amazing time of life.
0: That's, that's just amazing. And really looking forward to talking about that today. I really do want to focus on that journey. And, uh, before we delve into that, uh, I just like, if we could get some general background on interventional pain for our audience, you know, most of our listeners are practicing or aspiring interventional radiologists. And probably have some knowledge or experience with interventional pain techniques, uh, especially in certain areas, you know, uh, kyphoplasty and, and these kind of things. But, uh, I I think that as a whole in our community, we're a little less familiar with the breadth of interventional pain as a specialty of its own. So I'm curious, what do you call your specialty and how would you describe it?
1: So the basis of what I do is minimally invasive spine and pain management. That's how I describe myself when someone asks what I do. I think oftentimes when we use the term pain management. Oxycontin comes into people's minds. And, and so for the listeners to know that I actually don't prescribe opioids to any of my patients. I do all image-guided procedures to treat pain at its source. Much of the pain obviously being generated from spinal issues, be it a disc herniation, be it uh, facet joint arthrosis, be it peripheral nerve injuries. Those are the targets that we're going after and, and really trying to minimize a patient's pain by, by getting to the pain generator itself using image guiding techniques.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I think that that's a, um, you know, very wonderfully concise way of explaining it. Uh, I like that you mentioned that uh, you are not really uh, involved in so much the direct uh, kind of long-term medical management of pain, but rather finding ways to uh, mitigate that, uh, especially with this opioid crisis that we're, still finding ourselves in. I'm sure we'll talk about that more at length later, but what you're describing, you know, really fits into the way that interventional radiologists think about things and, um, it really excited to hear about your experience with practicing in this specific area of medicine. And then of course your, your journey to that point. And so I, would like to start focusing on that now. And I, I just think this, this story is so fascinating. I really don't want you to spare any detail. So, uh, would you mind kind of telling us about, you know, where did you grow up and and how did you get yourself on a trajectory to collegiate and professional football?
1: So I grew up in La Jolla, California. It's a small suburb of San Diego. And as a kid, I grew up watching the Dan Fouts era, San Diego Chargers and, and watching those teams have the great success that they had. Now they never won a Super Bowl, but Obviously, they the Air Correale days really transformed the way football was played. And I remember as a kid on the playground dreaming of playing in a Super Bowl and winning a Super Bowl. I started playing football in the fourth and fifth grade and wasn't very good. I was probably the worst kid on my team. I was tall, gangly, awkward. And then they canceled that football program, and I didn't play again till high school. And... By that time, I had grown into my body, became more coordinated, was getting stronger and really found my niche. This was something that I was good at. I was passionate about. And so throughout my high school career, starting to gain more accolades, becoming an all-star and all-American and getting recruited by universities throughout the country, I uh, settled my heart on the University of Southern California. Also growing up in Southern California, I grew up watching the Rose Bowl, the granddaddy of them all, bowl games. And USC was going you know, year after year to the Rose Bowl, watching some of the all-time greats playing those games. And so having dreams of playing there, I decided that USC is where I wanted to play college football. And also because at the time they had sent more players to the National Football League than any university in the country. And so I thought this was going to be the thing that was going to be the catalyst. that was going to enable me to achieve these dreams of playing in the NFL. Now, interesting enough, I get to USC and I sit on the bench for the first three years that I'm there. I've backed up An All American and a first round draft pick named Willie McGinnis, who was a defensive end. He's in the New England Patriots Hall of Fame. Uh, He won three Super Bowls with the Patriots. And then John Robinson came in to be the coach halfway through my time at USC. And he said, You know, John, I don't think you're a defensive end. I think you'd be a better offensive tackle. And I said, Look, if I'm going to play, let's do that. So then he proceeds. Let's do it. And then he proceeds to move me behind Tony Baselli who was another three-time All-American at USC, went on to be the first overall pick of the Jacksonville Jaguars, the number two pick in the NFL draft, and is now just this summer will be inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. So sitting on the bench for three years at USC going, gosh, I'm learning from the best on how to make it to the NFL and how to be successful. And so sure enough, I got my opportunity and was a first-round draft pick by the Green Bay Packers. Uh, we won the Rose Bowl my senior year at USC, and then I proceeded to go and play in two Super Bowls with the Packers and thrust into the starting lineup right off the bat. I was originally going to back up another USC Trojan named Ken Rutgers in Green Bay, but Ken suffered a knee injury uh, my rookie year, and I was thrust into the starting lineup. Made first-team NFL All-Rookie that year. I was the Green Bay Packers Rookie of the Year, and we went on to win Super Bowl 31. In my second season, I start the first five games Uh, blew out my knee and then ended up sitting on the bench for the rest of the year. But we went to a second Super Bowl that year. And then in my third training camp, destroyed my right knee. Ended up having six surgeries to reconstruct my knee and have never run since. This was in 1998 that that happened. Uh, Tried to go back and play in 1999, and I couldn't run on my knee. And that was the end of my NFL career.
0: I'd like to jump in on that, Dr. Michaels. There's so many amazing facets of what you just discussed and a thread I already see throughout everything you're describing is you are really person who seems to seize the opportunity in front of you, Even, even when things are not playing out kind of as expected and you know, my, my father played collegiate football as well. And so I know kind of this story quite well, that extremely talented high school athlete comes in ready to just take on the world you know, continue that meteoric rise to the NFL, and then you sit on the bench, and it's it's a really challenging thing to do, to come, you know, kind of big fish, smaller pond, and then get into the kind of this bigger area, and I'd just like to, you know, can you elaborate on your thought process going through that?
1: Well, I think we you know, as physicians, we've learned from some great people around us. I think that's how we've gained a lot of the skills and talents that we have. And, and it was no different with sports. I think when you are really honest with yourself and your skill level, I think you can always find areas to improve. And so coming out of, of high school as an All-American and then getting to USC, all of a sudden you realize, wow, there's a big jump in the talent when I get to this, like you said, larger pond. and And all of a sudden you go, you have one of two choices. You either have an arrogance thinking I've got all of this made and everyone else is stupid. And that's why I'm not playing. Or you go, I've got a lot to learn. There's a lot of growth to be had here. And I'm going to take this opportunity to become the best version of myself that I can become. And so for me, it was looking at these two all-American players, Willie McGinnis on the defensive side of the ball, Tony Baselli on the offensive side of the ball and watching the way that they prepared, the way they watched film, the way they trained in the weight room, the way that they approached the game, all of the mindset that they took into preparing week in and week out and saying, how do I match that level of intensity? And And so, Going into medicine, I think we have the same thing. I think we've been around some amazing radiologists, people who have transformed the field. I think all of us are around people who are doing things in an amazing way. And we can either go, we know everything, or we can humble ourselves and say, what can I learn from them? How can I change my approach? And I think what's going to make us great doctors is doing that on a day in and day out basis. I don't care how long you've been in practice. To be humble and go, how can I be better today is only going to enhance the impact that we have on our patients.
0: Wow, that, that was wonderfully said. I could, couldn't agree any more with that. It's just such an important, uh, perspective, this, this growth mindset to have. And you know, the element where that really comes out in your story is of course, with, with your injury and I, I just can't imagine you're on this meteoric rise and it kind of abruptly stops. I, I just can't imagine what that was like for you. I was wondering, could you tell us about, you know, what was the nature of, of the injury and What's going through your head during all this? You're kind of starting at some point, presumably, to think about, okay, it's you know, it's time to pivot and and what was that like for you?
1: The injury happened in training camp and it we had just played the Oakland Raiders in Oakland. We got beat in preseason. Mike Holmgren was our coach at the time. And he was furious and we came back to green bay it had rained all weekend in green bay there's mud all over the field and and he said there are no excuses tomorrow we are going to practice hard we're going to be in full pads you guys better wear the right shoes out there i don't want to hear about people slipping around and we knew that that things were serious we had just you know come off a super bowl loss and and we were expected to go back to the super bowl again so We were doing a drill, one-on-one pass protection on a muddy field. I was going against that year's first-round draft pick, Vonnie Holliday, a defensive end who had a a great long NFL career. And I took my pass set, and Vonnie grabbed the inside shoulder pad, my right shoulder, Uh, my foot stuck in the mud. He pulled on me. I twisted over my knee and then folded my knee in half. I tore my ACL, my MCL, my medial uh, collateral ligament. I tore my lateral meniscus. I took a quarter-sized divot of bone um, off the trochlear groove of my femur. And it was just a devastating injury. One of those where I hit the ground, grabbed my knee in pain and, and knew instantly I was in a lot of trouble. I went to go have an MRI done. And this was one of those moments that has just stuck with me as a physician. Obviously my whole life, I had dreamed of being an NFL athlete. I was living my dream and now that dream was hanging in the balance of this injury and this severe pain that I'm in. I go to have this MRI done. I come out of the scanner and the radiologist comes in and he goes, yeah, there's nothing there. And for a moment, I had this glimmer of hope. And then jokingly, he says, yeah, there's nothing left. You destroyed it all. And I went, this guy, just absolutely missed the moment he doesn't understand that my dreams my hopes are hanging on every word that he's saying and he wants to make a joke of the situation and that stuck with me to never trivialize a patient's experience you've got to realize they're scared their hopes are hanging on our words and we need to choose our words carefully and appropriately so his words have always stuck with me through my medical career of don't be that guy don't ever be that guy
0: wow so You know, you had that experience relatively early on in this process interface with medicine and with a radiologist specifically. I imagine that had to plant some sort of seed for you. And uh, I'm wondering, you know, can you talk about as you continued on in this process, deciding to go to medicine, what are the things that are guiding you in that direction?
1: The injury played a huge role in that. I actually had no science in my background. I had no plans of becoming a doctor. I yeah. was a religious You
0: weren't you weren't a pre-med at USC, right? You were I was a religious, were studies, yeah, a religious yeah,
1: studies. Yeah, religious studies major at USC. The furthest thing from pre-med, there was like zero huh. science in my background. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, through the injury, like I said, I had six surgeries, all the rehabilitation that I was going through, all the physicians that I was seeing. And and having come to the realization that I lost the ability to do the thing that I love to do most in life to an injury. And I said, you know what, if I could keep that from happening to someone else, that makes this whole experience worthwhile. And, and so that was kind of the catalyst that made me start to consider, could I do medicine? Is this something that I could actually be successful at? And I didn't know. I had, Like I said, I hadn't taken a chemistry class or biochem, much less ochem or any of these courses. And I, I didn't know if I could even have success in that. One of the things that I had been kind of dreaming of as a kid as well was I loved to fly. And I said, wouldn't it be great to get my pilot's license? And so after the injury and through the course of rehabilitating from, from the injury and trying to get back on the field, I decided to go pursue getting my pilot's license. And those concepts were so foreign to anything that I had ever done, Lear- learning navigation and, and learning about weather patterns and learning aerodynamics, and, but I had success doing this foreign thing and had so much fun doing it that I think it opened up my mind to the possibility of, if you have a passion towards something, if you know why you're wanting to do it, then you can learn anything. You have the capability to to learn any information and learn any material and pl- apply it successfully and have a successful career. And I think that gave me the courage to say, okay, I, I think I could potentially do medicine. I think I should really try to pursue this because I understand why I would be Becoming a doctor, I, I have my purpose, my reasons, and and then all it is is applying the information that I learn and and really moving forward to have success and and having the discipline of being an athlete and knowing how to self sacrifice and knowing how to have that delayed gratification towards a greater goal. I think those are things that doctors can really appreciate and athletes can appreciate is that there's a lot of delayed gratification in what we do, especially during the years of our medical training. It's uh you know, all the work and pride you can swallow. And, and so, you know, I think being an athlete and having that athlete mentality helped me have success down that journey of taking those steps to, to pursuing a career in medicine.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just, you know, I I can only imagine once you've done, you know, years of two a days and grueling workouts and especially at the NFL level, you know, having to put in, you know. Six hours of studying during the day seems like a total (laughs) cakewalk, probably.
1: (laughs) I remember sitting in my first year of medical school and people being so stressed going, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And I said... I don't have a 300 pound defensive lineman trying to ear hole me while I'm taking this test. <laughs> yeah, This is yeah. easy. I can just focus easy. on this test. That's all I have to do. There's not a million people watching on television, critiquing every answer to my test. I can just take it. And it's yeah. between me and the professor, like yeah. no stress. This is easy.
0: Absolutely. Wow. So yeah, just uh, clearly such a valuable perspective to have. So, you know, you're going through med school. When did you decide on radiology? Were you thinking about other things, you know, kind of the the stereotypical sort of athlete stories, is ortho or maybe neurosurgery or whatever, were, were those on the plate, uh, other things like sports medicine and, and when, how did radiology emerge to be the, the victor?
1: I went in with an open mind, uh, to medicine. Now, obviously the day I set foot on a medical campus, everyone was like, you're going into ortho.
0: <laughs> and, of course, you know, of course, it's it's been foretold.
1: Yeah, I think as a former professional athlete, everyone's going, yeah, you're going to be an orthopedic surgeon, no question about it. But I really kept an open mind and and was looking at things like anesthesia, radiology, sports medicine, obviously orthopedics. And so it was really kind of the course of going through the process and, and really experiencing all of my rotations. I, I did a little bit of research in interventional radiology pretty early on because I liked the concept of the minimally invasive image guided procedures. And, uh, and so I actually did some clinical research on uh, inferior vena cava filters and, and uh, you know, malfunction of IVC filters. And so that was one process that I, that I went down. And then, you know, during my orthopedic uh, surgery rotation, One of the things that made me really turn away from it is I was in about a six hour hip replacement surgery and having the injury to my knee. I mean, I obviously have some physical issues that I deal with and cope with on a day-to-day basis. And I remember standing there in lead for six hours during this hip replacement surgery. And at the end of it, I was hurting so bad. And I was like, I don't think I could physically handle a career in this. I I think it would just be too physically grueling. I don't know that my body could hold up to this. So that was one of the things that really turned me away from ortho. The other thing, having had, you know, a total of eight surgeries in my life, the thing that really appealed to me with interventional radiology was, you know, especially looking at some of the, the the vascular procedures that we were doing. And and there was a time in medicine where you'd have to crack someone basically from neck to navel and open them up in order to cauterize bleeders and clip things off. And and now we're taking, you know, a small needle through a catheter in the groin and and being able to coil off bleeds and fix aneurysms and I thought this is really amazing stuff that the patients walking out of here right after this are not sitting in an intensive care unit for, you know, a week afterwards fighting post-operative infections. We we've, we've really transformed the way medicine is practiced. And that kind of started my mind rolling of gosh, could we do this for orthopedic injuries, for spine injuries? Is that a possibility? Yeah.
0: Yeah, so you're uh kind of your your head is kind of already thinking about uh, interventional, you know, MSK interventional, interventional pain and in spine, you're kind of already thinking about that as a possibility, uh, before you start residency, it sounds like. Absolutely. Great. So you, you end up, uh, you, you match to residency, Baylor College of Medicine, our buddies down in Houston. And so, uh, you're, you know, you've had a fairly circuitous pathway. Uh, what was it like coming to Texas and Houston of all places <laughs> from, well, my mom- you know,
1: yeah, from San Diego. My mom yeah, was actually yeah. born and raised in Houston. I had spent a lot okay. of time in Houston. My my grandmother lived there. My aunt um, still continues to live there. And so we used to go to Houston about once a year. So it was a place that I was familiar with. Uh, the funny thing is, you know, my mom moved from Houston. My mom and dad moved from Houston just before my older sister was born and moved to San Diego. And I remember during my five-year residency, I'd be like, mom, come back to Houston. Come visit. And she'd be like, nah, come to San Diego. You <laughs> know what? <laughs> come back and visit San Diego. So, but, um, you know, I had a great experience. Baylor College of Medicine was an amazing institution to train at. We, we got to see all sorts of disease pathology. The interventional radiology program there is just an exceptional one. Um, you know, you get four straight months of interventional radiology training where you, you start off as the plebe and then you end up as the senior and, and really, you know, helping to run that department. And so the experience that you get Learning the interventional procedures, really having a lot of hands-on experience, and uh, your, your skill set just dramatically jumps through that type of training experience that we received at Baylor, and and so you you begin to realize that oh wow I've got this amazing confidence in my ability to use image guidance to to direct procedures and therapies, be it biopsies or doing vascular procedures or or spinal injections, um, you know really boosted that confidence and made me realize I, I really love this interventional stuff. I, I I don't necessarily want to sit in a dark room reading MRIs and, and CT scans all day long. I want to get my hands dirty a little bit. I really want to have that patient interaction.
0: Awesome. So you, uh, like, like many people, I think tuning in, you, you had that inclination from very early on in residency. You're probably thinking, okay, the, the imaging is, is cool, you know, but it's, it's kind of, uh, instrumental rather than the, the end goal. and so. You know, it sounds like you had a great experience on the IR. You're getting really good at that. So how did you decide? When did you come to the the fork in the road between IR and then interventional pain? How did you even find out that interventional pain was this was a viable path?
1: Those four months of IR, as fun and as exciting as they were, were also grueling. You were on call all the time. You're getting called in on nights, you're getting called in on weekends, you're getting called in on holidays. IR, there was no rest for the weary. And and so while I loved the procedures, I didn't love the lifestyle. And so that was one of the things that started to kind of turn in my mind. I already had three kids at the time. Uh, And so thinking about my family and work-life balance, all of a sudden, I just went, I, I love the work. I don't love the life. I don't know that I want to pursue this type of lifestyle for the rest of my career. And I ended up having dinner one night with an anesthesiologist, and he said to me, why don't more radiologists go into interventional pain? You guys invented all of these procedures that we're doing.
0: exactly. Exactly.
1: (laughs) I don't know why there's no radiologists doing this, And, and that resonated with me. And so I did a little bit of research to say, are are there any radiologists out there who are actually practicing interventional pain management? Because he was right. The procedures are all things that we're so used to doing. It's right in our wheelhouse. We invented all the procedures. You get that patient interaction. You get the interventional aspect of your career, but you don't have the night calls, the weekends, the holidays. You actually have a little bit better work-life balance. So Doing some research, I found a doctor named Wade Wong at the University of California at San Diego. Yeah, Dr. Wong is a legend. He's an absolute legend, neurointerventional radiologist. For your, those of your listeners who don't know, he's, he has since retired, but he actually left the neuroventional space and only practiced pain management. So I got a hold of Wade and called him up and I said, Hey, Wade, I am curious about this life you've chosen and, and the route that you've gone down and wondering, is this a possibility? You know, I'm a radiologist, but I don't know of any other radiologists who are practicing pain. Is it possible? And his response to me was evidently because he's been doing it all these years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and so that was the catalyst for me to start to search for programs out there who would be open to taking a radiologist for a fellowship program. And it was right about that time that I'd finished my IR that we were starting that application process for fellowship. And so I had applied for an MSK fellowship kind of throughout the country, but then I started to look at interventional pain management programs out there and found the University of California, Irvine, and they pride themselves as being a multidisciplinary pain management program. So not just anesthesia-based or not just PM&R-based, but really having an open concept of, of physicians who could be talented and skilled in the interventional pain space and offering them opportunities to train. And, and so that's where I applied and was accepted and, and ended up pursuing that pathway of going to UCI and learning interventional pain management.
0: That's, that's fascinating. Uh, and I think it, it illustrates a few things that I've found throughout my, my career so far. And one is that radiology is quite a small world and it's, it's so beneficial. If you find out of someone who is doing kind of what you're interested in, you reach out to them and you are, you know, 99% of the time going to get a positive response and they're going to be encouraging in that way. And so you kind of went that route and you sort of you found out that UCI was, was the place you needed to be at. And I'm kind of curious, did you come up against hurdles? You know, did you find that a lot of programs were just kind of saying, nah, we're not going to train you?
1: That was definitely a hurdle. I think there's a level of territorialness uh, involved in medicine that is unfortunate, but I think there were certain programs that were afraid that if they opened the door to radiologists, that the floodgates were going to open up and that they were going to lose their grip on a, uh, a niche market and that radiologists obviously having the skill set to target just about anything with a needle and right. go after it, their fear was that uh, they were going to lose it. And and so I did. I found a little bit of bias that I was not an anesthesiologist or that I was not a physical medicine or rehabilitation physician and, and did face some of those challenges during that process. But fortunately, like I said, I found a program that was open-minded that saw the potential there. Some of the challenges that I also faced, you know, the skill set that we have as radiologists, we have phenomenal imaging skills, phenomenal use, you know, as interventional radiologists, phenomenal ability to to target anything utilizing yeah. image guidance. Yeah. V- our visual physical
0: spatial ex- skills are off the charts.
1: <laughs> a hundred percent. But our physical exam skills, eh, they're lacking yeah. a little bit. So they're a little, you know, a what, little atrophic, maybe. Uh, yeah. Just a little bit. A little bit. You know, since our intern year, we, Probably hadn't set hands on a whole lot of patients for a physical exam. So, you know, that was where I felt a little bit behind the eight ball. And and it was great to be able to be paired with actually a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician who obviously their physical exam skills are phenomenal. And so we got to really help each other throughout the training process. And that's where medicine can have just a great synergistic relationship between specialties where our strengths we can utilize to, to help other people in their areas of weakness and vice versa. And, and so I was really blessed to have that training experience where a PM and r doctor really showed me the ropes on a physical exam. Yeah. Wow. that, That just
0: sounds like a really, like you said, synergistic experience. And it's, it's something I think about a lot, you know, it can be, I see this a lot in radiology in general, it's kind of like, Hey, why aren't we being more involved with other specialties and kind of having that, uh, intermingling aspect, you know, we have a lot to teach each other and learn from each other and especially as training is concerned, it's just, it seems like a a better way to do it. And yet there's kind of this territorial aspect of it, uh, that you, that you spoke of. And uh, I think that's kind of unfortunate, but you know, I, I think that, um, people who know a little bit more about the interventional spine community, it's very clear that, uh, you know, there's, there's a handful of radiologists who are very involved. And, uh, really involved in the, the training and education of the professionals and the, the physicians in this area beyond the training programs. So it, you know, that's kind of interesting to hear about your experience, you know, kind of the bias overall, and then what ended up sounding like a, a, a very beneficial experience at your training program. And then kind of seeing just kind of how things are going overall, I, I think I would hope that interventional pain is kind of getting to more of a uh, multidisciplinary kind of collaborative standpoint. I'm kind of curious, how, how have you seen that gone, you know, since you've been in practice?
1: I think it is still a very anesthesia dominated space. Uh, there there are PM&R physicians there. There are a couple neurologists. There are a couple family practice physicians. Uh, actually one here in Dallas, Kaz Amardelfin Amer- Amer- is a, a family practice physician who's actually one of the leaders in the interventional pain space. So there have been those who have broken through that barrier. And, and then there's a handful of us radiologists who uh, practice. And one of the things when I got through with my training right after me, a year after me, a physician named Fred Weiss uh, who's a radiologist as well, who did a mammography and an emergency medicine fellowship and then did an interventional pain fellowship as well. Um, Fred and I both petitioned the uh, American Board of Radiology to make pain a pathway for radiologists. Can they sponsor us for the boards? Because I I was not able to be sponsored by the boards for the American Board of Radiology for interventional pain management. And I had to to go a different route. And so we actually petitioned the American Board of Radiology, and now it is an accepted pain pathway. The ABR will sponsor radiologists for the pain boards, and, and we can get our certification going that route now. So there's a lot of ground still to be gained. I think there needs to be a more diverse population of physicians who are practicing interventional pain. And I think more radiologists need to be made aware of, of one, how gratifying this specialty is. And one of the things that was a challenge with interventional radiology that I also faced was, you know, a patient would be brought to you, you would treat them and then they would leave and you would have no idea how they did. Yeah. Did my therapy make any difference? And, you know, every now and again, you'd get a biopsy result and know, did you get the tissue you were looking for or not? But you never really got to follow the patient. You didn't get to see him beforehand. You didn't get to play a role in the diagnosis and you didn't get to see him afterwards. And one of the most gratifying things is is the ability to meet these patients, use imaging, reading their MRIs, their x-rays, their CT scans, being able to come up with a diagnosis based on a physical exam, being able to then come up with a treatment algorithm, implement that treatment algorithm, and then follow up with the patient and actually see, did it work? Are you doing better? And there's such a great reward. And I would love more radiologists to, to know that that pathway is there, that you can have some patient care and some interventional care, and that you get the reward of both of those worlds. And the imaging isn't lost. I use it every day. I read MRIs every single day. I just don't have to be the one dictating them.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah. I I couldn't agree with you more, Dr. Michaels. And that's one thing we're hoping to accomplish by starting to focus on uh, this area a little bit more on back table is, uh, you know, getting people to understand that there are definitely pathways to, uh, get involved and, and have a very gratifying career in this space and may just require thinking a little bit outside the box of maybe a typical imaging group practice. And so on that note, I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, what's, what's sort of the landscape like of interventional pain specifically. What was your experience starting out after, after training, kind of navigating the jobs and and how did you find yourself in your current practice
1: i think the challenge across medicine is you know how do you find the right job right out of training and and most doctors don't most doctors you know jump from one to another until yeah i i don't know what the statistics are but i think it's three or four jobs before you land your permanent home is is about the average and i i'm throwing that out of the air but i think it's something in that uh ballpark range i actually joined uh a group in Newport Beach, California. So right out of UC Irvine, I met a great interventional pain physician named Dr. Rick Patius. He's an anesthesiologist, uh, pain physician. He actually trained me in a spinal cord stimulator training course, a cadaver course uh, during my fellowship. But he saw, gosh, this guy has great hands. He's got good interpersonal skills. And so he approached me at that point and said, hey, I'm looking for someone to join my practice. And and we just hit it off, and he's got this great personality, an incredibly smart doctor, incredibly good hands, very talented. So I joined his practice initially. My wife then got an opportunity in Dallas. She's uh, been in the mortgage banking industry. She's been a, a technology executive in mortgage banking. She was with J.P. Morgan Chase and the CEO of the mortgage banking division of Chase. Came to Dallas to do a startup mortgage banking company, offered her the chief technology officer position. And I said, look, too good of a position for you to pass up. Um, I can practice medicine anywhere. So I jumped to Dallas. I instantly joined a corporate medicine group here in Dallas, you know, kind of a big business model, multi-physician group, and very quickly realized this isn't a good fit for me and met three other doctors who were looking to add a fourth. Um, and it was really kind of this independent practitioner model, you know, start up my own thing. It's an eat what you kill model. We share kind of general overhead expenses. And that's where I've been for the last seven years. I started my own, I opened my own office, started my own practice, had my own office-based lab, hired my own staff and and I'm my own boss. And it's the best thing I can ever imagine. Really challenging to start with. Um, sure. It took me about a, a year to make money. I remember about Six months into it, I turned to my wife and I said, did I make a huge mistake? Should I just take in a salary <laughs> job? But now I, I, I couldn't be happier with how my practice is.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, and just hitting on that theme again throughout your journey of kind of coming into a less than ideal circumstance and figuring out, okay, how, how are we going to make this work? So it sounds like you actually benefited from that, that short-lived position and kind of this more corporatized gig. And you kind of knew, okay, this is one way of doing things. I'm not really interested in going that way. And so, uh, you know, you know, I, I guess the one thing I, I want to get your drill down on your thought process for is how did you find out the things that were important to you in, in terms of finding that closer to ideal job, you know, knowing that there's no perfect job, there's trade-offs you, it was probably no surprise to you that, you know, starting off in this independent practice was going to be tough.
1: I knew that I really didn't like where the country was headed with opioid pain medications. And I knew that as interventionalists, our job was to treat pain in an alternative fashion so that we were not getting people addicted to potentially dangerous and deadly medications. And so, you know, going through the corporate model where you had to do what the company line was, I said, that's that's not my practice philosophy. I know how I wanna practice medicine. I know uh, what my own, uh, you know, personal goals are, my own personal beliefs are. And and so I, I wanna practice medicine the way I wanna practice medicine. I, I, I've trained, I'm, I feel competent in what I do, and I don't want someone else telling me how I need to do that. So that made jumping ship a little bit easier, but then, you know, Starting a pain practice in a very busy metropolitan center, you know, Dallas. I, my joke is, and, I could kick and a,
0: Highland Highland Park specifically, I, Highland Park, <laughs>
1: nonetheless. I my joke was, I could kick a soccer ball and I could hit three pain doctors in the yeah. head. And it's 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 almost true. It's so they're so competitive. There's so you know many physicians around this area, and it's such a desirable place to live. But I I knew that. If I practice medicine the right way, if I care for patients in a way that they're not getting cared for elsewhere, that I'll be able to build this successfully, it just may take more time. Because true, if I wrote opioids, I'd be busy right off the bat. You know, people will come, they'll fill the doors if you're, if you're writing them drugs, but it's not how I wanted to practice. So really building a purely interventional practice on my own, it took time. And it, it took a little bit of that self-sacrifice that we talked about at the beginning of the, of the podcast, that delayed gratification. I, I love the movie Field of Dreams and it was kind of if you build it, they will come. But it's it's gonna take time and sacrifice to do it the right way. And and so that reward is now finally here. And it took me it took me a couple of years to really build the reputation of providing just outstanding patient care and and really caring about the patients and taking an interest in them and and, and having a deeper understanding. I've been injured. I know what it's like to be in pain. I I know what it is like to have your life completely altered by a physical ailment. And to be able to look my patients in the eyes and and have that empathy, to be able to say, I understand and there's hope. And and I remember, you know, one of the early days of my radiology training at Baylor College of Medicine, a physician said to me, patients don't walk around on their x-rays. Be very careful what you say in your reports. Be very careful what you communicate to the patient. Even going back to my experience with the radiologist back when I had blown my knee out, that you always want to give a patient hope. You always want them to know that there's a way out, that there can be a better way. And and so being able to impart that onto my patients as well on a day-to-day basis, all of a sudden there becomes a buzz about your practice. It becomes a buzz about you as a physician that there's something different about this guy. He actually cares. And, and there is actually hope when seeing him. And, and while that takes time to build that reputation, once that really clicks, then, then that buzz is out there and, and you can really have a, a joyful and exciting practice to go to every day.
0: That's really inspiring. It, you know, just It's something we've discussed in a number of episodes previously on Backtable. People who are building up this, uh, OBL kind of focused practice, it takes a lot to get it going. And it seems, you know, important core value is just practicing good medicine and being that doctor you wish you had had, uh, when you were kind of going through all this. And it's, I think the, the issue that a lot of us run into is, is that issue of self-gratification. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of, well, you know, you can really sacrifice for this span of time couple years for you to really get this going, you know, you could just as easily, like you said, be riding opioids. You, I'm sure you could have found a job with the, any number of radiology groups. Those are all options. Uh, those doors are never really shut. But if professional gratification is is really what you're after, this, you know, this is a, this is a great pathway to go through. It's not for everybody.
1: It isn't. and And you're right. All those other jobs exist, and, and those are right for some physicians. They just weren't right for me. And so each of us has to explore what are our own personal goals? What are our practice goals? What, what How do we want our life to look from a professional and personal standpoint? And then you get to choose that pathway for yourself. And so just because this pathway was right for me may not be right for some of your listeners.
0: Absolutely. And I, I did want to hear a little bit more about your specific practice. Uh, so you mentioned you. You've got an OBL-based practice. I'd like to hear about the interplay between clinic time and procedural time and uh, you know, kind of OBL versus ASC aspects.
1: So I'll, yeah, I'll take you through what my typical clinic week looks like. I do clinic Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So from 8 to 3.30, I see patients on Monday and Wednesday, 8 to noon on Friday. We close the office at noon on Friday and give everybody a longer weekend and... Uh, it's nice to, uh, you know, ha- having a family and being able to be there for different activities is always great. And so it was a personal choice that we made is is shorter clinic days, 8 to 3.30, get out earlier, you know, be there for after-school activities, be there for family things. Tuesdays and Thursdays are my procedure days. I typically go about 8 to noon in my OBL. And then I go from about 12.30 until about 2 at an ancillary surgery center. and the way I make that decision, basically office-based procedures, I can do just about anything in the office ba- office-based lab. I can do kyphoplasty, spinal cord stimulator trials, rhizotomies, epidural steroid injections, um, ultrasound guided, you know, tendon sheath injections. I I can really run the gamut and I have all of that equipment in my office-based lab. But um, if a patient has any pretty more significant medical comorbidities, Um, heart issues, lung issues, liver disease. They're not ambulatory. They can't climb up on a table and get down off a table by themselves. Then I make the decision to bring them over to the ASC. We have a little bit higher level of care, obviously, in an ASC than we would uh, in the office-based situation where larger nursing staff and and just more physicians around in in case something were to go go wrong and a patient needs a stepped-up level of care. Excellent.
0: And I'm kind of curious uh, for some of the procedures, like, uh, you know, you mentioned a a spinal cord stem uh, trial for a permanent implant or other kind of permanent implants. uh, Are you able to do those in the OBL or is that an ASC situation as well?
1: Great question. Those would be the ASC. Any any type of surgical implantation of a spinal cord stimulator or an interspinous spacer device or surgical implantation of a, you know, sacroiliac fusion uh, device, anything where we're going to make an incision, need a bovie, you know, really need an operating room s- scenario, we do that in an ASC.
0: Sure. Gotcha. So sounds like, uh, you know, uh, the more sick patients for, you know, less advanced procedures or any of the advanced procedures require acquiring an actual surgical approach and implant. Those will be your ASC cases. And, you know, how many, you know, how many cases are you getting through in a day? You know, kind of what's a, what's a typical day look like?
1: So typically I'll see in a clinic day, I'll see about 25 patients a day, uh, except on Fridays where it's a half day where I'll see maybe 16 patients in that half day on a Friday. Uh, I really believe in in spending a lot of time with my patients. So I I try to limit my, my clinic days to roughly around 25. Sometimes you know that fourth quarter october november december when everybody's insurance deductibles have been met and so they're not paying out of pocket and and everyone wants to get their healthcare done before that january one flip right the switch where all of a sudden their deductibles are all current again <laughs> uh you know those will be a little bit busier we may see 30 patients uh during those months just because you're really trying to accommodate as many people as you can being sensitive to the financial needs of patients but I really believe in, like I said, spending a lot of time explaining patients' conditions, going over the imaging with them, explaining the treatment process and what they should expect. Uh, And and you can't see 50 patients in a day. I can't see 50 patients in a day and do that effectively. And so I really try to limit that to 25 patients a day in clinic. And then procedurally, about the same. I'll do about 25 procedures on a given day, um, sometimes 30. So I I really am somewhere between 40 and 60 procedures a week because I do, you know, two procedure days. We do a lot in the office. It's a much faster paced in the office because, like I said, patients are healthier. It's, you know, it it takes much less time. And and the surgery center will do a a little bit lighter of a load. uh, But those patients typically need a little bit higher level of care and time.
0: And the procedures you're doing, you're, you're running everything from epidural steroid injections to some of the other more complex stuff you mentioned, like stems, kyphos, things of that nature. So it's, it sounds like a pretty, um, fun variety to be dealing with on a daily basis.
1: It's a really fun mix. And I, I treat things from head to toe. And so it, it really does have a lot of reward to it. It's not just the monotony of doing one thing over and over again. Now, now I will be honest, the, the majority of what I treat is spinal related pathology because if anyone's ever hurt their back, they know that's gonna send you to a doctor faster than just about anything else. You herniate a disc in your back, you're not functioning and they're gonna come get treated for that right away. People who tweak a shoulder or a knee, they may deal with that for a little bit longer period of time but uh but a disc injury or or significant back or neck pain they're they're coming in to see you so i do a lot of epidural steroid injections i do a lot of facet injections medial branch nerve blocks rhizotomies that's probably 80% of the practice just because like i said that condition's going to slow people down faster than anything
0: sure yeah Just back pain is just so ubiquitously prevalent as anyone who's been alive for, you know, any portion into their thirties will, will probably tell you, (laughs) you you know, you're providing an extremely valuable service for those patients too, you know, helping them to resume their normal activities. And, uh, you know, can you, can you speak a little bit about something you, you spoke uh, for a moment about earlier is just this aspect of seeing the patient after the procedure and, you know, seeing how that is going. What's, what's that process like for you?
1: How does that guide you in your practice? You get that gratification of knowing that you've made a diagnosis. Like I said, based on imaging and physical exam findings, you came up with a treatment algorithm and you've implemented that treatment. And then when you get to see a patient back and you get to hear that you've changed their life and patients will go on. My website, they'll leave Google reviews and just talk about this incredible experience they had and how I've given them their life back. And they'll say that to me as well. And to see that difference that you've made in a person's life and, and oftentimes in a way that's so much more simple than they ever perceived. And I think people are afraid when they're in pain. Oh God, some doc's gonna get me hooked on opioids. They're, they're, there's no hope for me. I, my life is over. And then you show them this really treatment, the really simple treatment and they come back and they go, that was it. And I feel this amazing. The reward is really indescribable. And that's what makes the job so fun is really getting to see this dramatic impact you're having on the quality of people's lives and to get to hear it from their own mouths, that you have drastically changed their world. You've changed their family's lives. Uh, You've really given them their life back, enabled them to be friends and spouses and parents again. When that hope was kind of lingering on the outcome of what you' have treated them with.
0: That's amazing. And it's uh, something you you get to experience on a pretty regular basis. I, I can just imagine that it's going to be really gratifying.
1: It's incredible. and it's it's an everyday thing. It's what makes going to work so satisfying is is not only do we get the benefit of the problem solving, you know, I, I have to figure out what is the pain generator, what's causing your pain. Sometimes it's glaringly obvious. You have a big, like, right foraminal disc herniation at L four five, and they've got this ridiculous pain, and you're like, eh, "That's easy. I know what it is." But sometimes there's a little bit of trial and error. There's a multiple different potential pain generators, and so using the imaging and using the physical exam, and then you know, targeting different pain sources procedurally, and then getting to the bottom and solving this puzzle, and then seeing the outcome. It really makes the job fun on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that just sounds so much fun. And I, I, I wanted to see if you'd elaborate on the, the imaging part of it. That was actually one of my last questions I want to talk is, how do you feel your background as a radiologist maybe gives you a different perspective, a different approach in this area? How do, you, how do you use that imaging expertise?
1: Well, I use it every day. And the fun thing about doing what I do versus being just the radiologist is how many times have we gotten a imaging study come across our desk? And the indication is pain. Pain, yeah. <laughs> Great. Great, thanks. Dozens, yeah, dozens really.
0: of times a day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. It's such a common thing. Well, I know what pain I'm looking for, and and so when I have the imaging component to go along with the physical exam finding, it really does help me pinpoint. That's it. I it, a lot of times you can see it, and even though the radiologist, you know, we're going through our reports, and you're you're reading the spine, and you you're just going, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I see there, but is any of it clinically significant? And and having the ability to have done the physical exam and, and heard the entire history of the patient and then look at the imaging, it's oftentimes glaringly obvious from my standpoint, whereas from the radiologist's standpoint, it's something that could very easily be missed. And we see these things like subtle little annular tears in the disc, and you're sure. looking at this patient and you're going, this is discogenic pain 100%. And and as a radiologist, you're making a note. Okay, there's a small annular tear at you know L5 S1, and and I'm going, oh, that's not small. That's super significant. That's what the source of the pain yeah. is. Modic changes will make just kind Absolutely. of off the cuff comments about modic changes on the MRIs, and you realize how clinically significant those can be for vertebrogenic pain. You know things like facet arthropathy. It's such a huge component of what I treat. And oftentimes we just make the notation, oh, okay, there's a little bit of fluid in the facet joint. There's a little bit of arthropathy there. And you go, that's the pain generator. That's why we're getting this imaging. And so being able to really correlate between the physical exam, finding the patient history and seeing the imaging adds a whole new dynamic to our radiology training, because I'm I'm given this incredible gift of actually having the patient sit right in front of me and be able to tell their story It's like having cheat codes, you know, you know
0: what you're looking for. It instantly improves your, your specificity and, you know, everything you're talking about pain generators, I've found that, uh, you know, when I first started reading spine MRI, I mean, it's painful, right? It's, it's painful to your soul because those, those studies can be so difficult. The anatomy is so exquisite It's so much that's wrong. And, uh, I, I found those studies, I kind of dreaded a lot of them. And then once I started thinking about things in terms of pain generators, you know, These are the different things that can actually cause pain and therefore they're potentially clinically significant. We're not talking about adrenal nodules here. We're talking about things that are, you know, potentially causing debility. And I think it's really fun to look at it that way as a potential puzzle. And then when you have the clinical aspect of seeing the patient in front of you, I mean, it's like, it's basically like a totally different imaging modality than, oh, here's another degenerative spine, you know, here, here goes the uh, descriptive effort as my attending Dr. Chasen has said, that one's going to be a descriptive effort. <laughs> it makes it a lot more fun to think about how uh, you're going to treat it.
1: It does. I had a great mentor at Baylor College of Medicine, Al Watson. He's a breast imager. He's he's since retired, but he still does board training for, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of people who have taken board courses on breast imaging, Al Watson has been the guy who's instructed you on them. And He always had a philosophy. He said, every patient you see is a family member. Treat them like your mom, your brother, your sister, your dad, your son, your daughter. And if you have that mentality, you're always going to do the right thing for the patients. And I think it's a great reminder for those radiologists who are reading these spine images. Don't forget that this is a patient attached to it, that this is your mom, your brother, your dad, your sister, your son, your daughter. And if you really take the human perspective of I'm looking at these images and this is a person who's suffering. And if I can really be detailed about what I'm describing here, and if I can take that understanding that that facet joint could be so debilitating that they're not able to go to work, that they're not able to care for their family. And if I really understand that this pathology has a deeper meaning on a human level, and you approach every study that you read from that standpoint, you're gonna become a better physician. And the outcomes for that patient on the other end of that study is going to be that much better.
0: Uh, that's amazing. Uh, just so inspiring. And I think it's I think it's something that we can really strive to take into account in our practice as as radiologists. You know, whether we're interventional radiologists, interventional pain physicians, it's it's really easy to get lost in you know the imaging and separate it from this is a patient with their own their own hopes and dreams, family. And uh, everything you're describing, I think, is going to make a lot of people really excited to start thinking about interventional pain on a deeper level in our community. Um, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I want to ask for our uh, radiology residents or med students who are pursuing radiology who are interested in this, any words of wisdom for them?
1: This is an open pathway. If this is something that you want to pursue, it is absolutely possible for you to pursue it. There may be some challenges in the process because it's not as wide open as, say, MSK or IR or, or you know body radiology, but it is a possible pathway. It's a very rewarding life. Kind of like I said from the beginning, uh, my hours are great. I, uh, it's one of the reasons I chose it. No nights, no weekends, no calls, no holidays. Um, and so I, I get the best of both worlds of great patient care, diagnosis, and treatment. I get the reward of the follow-up. Um, and I have a great uh, work-life balance. And, and so if it's something that you could see as a possible interest in your career, absolutely pursue it. We need more radiologists in this space. You, obviously, our ability to read imaging, our ability to uh, hit targets using image guidance is, is our strong suit as interventional radiologists. And it's a very rewarding f- field to, to uh, pursue.
0: Fantastic. And uh, for our listeners, where can they kind of uh, keep tabs on your latest pursuits?
1: My website is johnmichaelsmd.com. Michaels has no A, so it's J-O-H-N-M-I-C-H-E-L-S-M-D.com. And uh, I, I welcome any of your listeners also to reach out to me. I'm, I'm happy to discuss further the pursuits of possibly going into an interventional pain field as a radiologist and and give them some more tips of the trade. And love mentoring, love teaching. I would welcome any of them into my practice at any given time, too, if they just wanted to see a day of what it's like in the life of uh, practicing interventional pain management.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Michaels. Uh, I wanna thank you for you know, taking your time to give this to our listeners. And on a personal level, uh, I've had an absolute blast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And again, thank you so much. And uh, for our listeners, we'll see you on the next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore backtable MSK on Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself Jacob Fleming and co-hosts Michael Barraza and Chris Beck. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron
1: Bowles, Nick Shellcross
0: and Ness Smith-Savadoff Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz.
1: Social media and show notes written by Marvy Espiritu. And Anne Dang. Administrative support
0: provided by Junroy Kenebrou. Thanks again and see you next time.